back to the Black and Raw podcast. I am your host, Tino Kada Tondarai Vunzabaya. Now I ain't gonna repeat that. Here is a show that is creating the dialogue and the space for black men to be their most authentic selves. Now my guest today is Dennis. Dennis is an older black man who just happens to be gay. Um, and he brings a real good wealth of experience to this conversation, actually. Um, we talk about a lot of good things in this conversation. We talk about um, criminalization of gay men. We talk about the support that he received from his mother and his family. Um, we talk about the HIV epidemic. Um, we talk about Black Connection which is a organization community that he started uh, recently uh, for older gay black men. And it's really interesting to hear about that part. So uh, that'll be included as well. <laughs> uh, we talk about masculinity and sexuality. Uh, we talk about Obama and how he was legalizing gay marriage in the US. So we touch on a lot of uh, good things during this conversation and I think they're going to be really good for people to absorb and to learn more about the LGBT community and about uh, the black gay experience. So before we get started, um, you guys already know what it is by now. Um, There's 10 episodes in, you you should know this. (laughs) Um, But if you guys just take a pause, breathe, ask yourself, how you doing? How are things with you? How's life going? Um, I'll leave you with that for a second. All right. So, um, I really hope things are good with you. Um, and if they're not, I'm sure they will get better. Um, but right now, um, I'm probably just going to start playing this conversation, to be honest with you. Um, So I really hope you guys enjoy the episode. Um, Here's my conversation with Dennis. Hi, Dennis. Welcome to the Black and Raw podcast. It's good to have you on today. How are you doing? Hi, Tina. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. Thank you for coming uh, this afternoon to talk to me. Um, I'm sure we're going to have a really good conversation. Um, so, Dennis, um, so I'll just, just kind of get started off into it. Um, so when did you kind of realize um, that you were sort of, like, when did you realize that you were gay? Like, what was the, what was the kind of the, I don't know, the starting point, I guess? <laughs> Well, it's interesting when you ask me that question, Tina, because I'm thinking, when was the last time one of your friends asked you, when did you realize that you were heterosexual? And it's interesting because, you know, I often get asked that question, yet heterosexuals never ask it of themselves. True. Or the heterosexuals, and, you know, and I just wonder about that. But in answer to your question... Um, <laughs> Go ahead. You know, yeah, I knew from a very young age, you know, five years of age. I remember I've told this story a million times. 
mm. running around the school playground playing kiss a girl, chase a girl, and I wasn't chasing the girls. <laughs> that was uh, five five years old, yeah, I remember. Yeah. That. And I've always known, even from a very young age, that I was different from the other boys around me. And, uh, mm. yeah, I've always known that I was different. I might not have had the language to describe it at that age, but I've always known that I was different from other guys around me. Yeah. And how did um and how did that sort of feel thinking that you are sort of different from other boys? Like well, actually, you know what? It, it kind of um when I look back on it, I mean, I think it really forced me to be a kind of individual and to just be myself. Mm. I mean, it was a journey, it, you know, it didn't happen overnight. Um but I think, yeah, and it, and I kind of celebrated the difference that I had, you know what I mean? And I wouldn't allow people to kind of dismiss me simply because I wasn't the same as them. Yeah, definitely. Like, and I, and I imagine like, because a lot of people now kind of just follows trends and kind of, I feel like being individual these days is kind of something that isn't, I know, isn't as celebrated. Um, mm. Um, so is how did you set yourself out from like how did you set yourself out as an individual? Oh yeah, so when did I first kind of yeah, I, I can remember, you know, being seven years of age, being the only boy in my class that uh, knitted and all the boys used to take the pee out of me, why don't you play football like us? Um and I just wasn't interested. I was interested in knitting and I became yeah. very good at it. <laughs> yeah. No, that's I, good. You know that's, what? I think I might take that up again, actually, thinking about it. <laughs> Taking it out. Why? When was the last time you did it? Oh, God. It was when I was a kid. I mean, when you were a kid. Ah, oh, you probably still have a bit of the skills, to be fair. I imagine so. This is true, probably. Yeah. So, so what was it? So, kind of, what was growing up? Um, when did you grow up? What, what era was it that you were growing up in? Yeah, well, I was born in 1962. I know I don't look old enough, but it's true. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, in Manchester. And yeah, what was it like back then? I guess, well, you know, I remember when I was 18, I think I was, the first time I had uh, sex with another guy. And I remember being absolutely terrified that I would go to prison if mm. anybody found out, because back then it was illegal to have uh, gay sex unless you were over the age of 21. I wasn't 21, I was 18. And yeah, uh, yeah I never forget being absolutely terrified afterwards, thinking, oh my God, if anybody finds out, I'm going to prison. Yeah. Unfortunately, we live in a very different world, you know, 40 odd years later uh, today. And um, and I know that if those, so for example, lowering the age of consent to 16 would have made a massive difference to me when I was growing up back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. How so? Like, how would it, what, what well, would be the well, difference? Come on, I mean, no, come on. I mean, why, I mean, to me, it's an obvious one. Yeah, all my peers around me can go off and have sex, but I can't. And if I have sex, I'm going to go to jail. I mean, yeah, yeah. For me, it's as, it's as simple as that, really. <laughs> yeah, and I, I get, and I guess it just it just segregates people as well, doesn't it? Like, 
it doesn't really make sense. Well, I, I think it does. I think it does more than segregate people. To be mm. honest with you, Tino, I think what it does is it criminalizes men like me. That's yeah. what it did. And I think the impact of that criminalization seriously impacted a lot of gay men's mental health. And I know that for the last, what, 20, 30 years in this country, the group at the highest risk of suicide are lesbians and gay men. Yeah. And it's not because, you know, lesbians and gay men are born suicidal. (laughs) It's because of the homophobia that they experience on a daily basis. Still in 2021, even when we have Graham Norton on the TV every Friday, Elton John on the front page of The Sun with the baby, you know, we've got uh, Pose, we've got uh, a whole range of um, increased visibility of LGBT people. And yet, every single day in this city and in this country, lesbians and gay men experience homophobia every single day. Yeah. Do you still experience homophobia, would you say? Yeah, of course I do. You know, I couldn't walk down the street in Brixton with my boyfriend holding his hand without feeling that I'm going to be, you know, either verbally abused or even physically attacked. Yeah. For example, you know, and yet we've had gay marriage in this country for what, for over five years or so? Yeah, quite recent actually, yeah. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, I mean, no, homophobia is, and it's, it's very much alive and kicking in my, in my experience, yeah. Mm. So how would you say that, um, I guess thinking about homophobia, like how is, what's it like within kind of like the black community? Like, how have you sort of experienced? Well, I mean, I think there's this kind of narrative that's out there or stereotype that suggests that, um, Black people are more homophobic than other groups of people, mm-hmm. which I think is not true. <laughs> I mean, you know, if it was true, then my family, which who come from Jamaica, um, you know, they're supposed to be homophobic, but they've been incredibly supportive ever since I came out. And yeah. Not just my family here in the UK, but my family over in Jamaica too. And I know that my experience is not unique. Um, I am not alone in having the support of black family members in relationship to me being gay. Yeah, I think the I think the narrative that's out there, is, or I should say, no, I think those positive voices get drowned out by the kind yeah. of yeah, yeah, definitely. I have to yeah. How would you say that your, I guess, your family provided you support? Then, like, what, like, what did that kind of sort of look like? Well, they just always said. I remember when I came out. Um, you know, Dennis, just because uh, you're gay does not mean that you're not a member of this family. Yeah, and you're always a part of this family. We never ever want you to see yourself as anything else than that. And you know, I'm included in everything in the family. You know, what I mean. Yeah, 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 it's never, it's just never been a big issue, really. Yeah, uh, I mean, of course, you know, when I came out to my mum, she was upset, but she wasn't upset because I was gay, she was upset that uh, lots of other people knew before she did. Uh, <laughs> Fair in, enough, <laughs> yeah, because, because I appeared in a um, a newspaper article in The Voice 
mm. uh, in the center page spread with the headline, glad to be gay. And I was going to use this as my uh, vehicle Coming to out. come out to my mum. Yeah. I told my, I told my sister about it. And she was just so excited that her brother was in uh, the Voice <laughs> newspaper. She said, Mum, 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 you've got to go and get the Voice newspaper. Dennis is in it. But she didn't tell my mum what, uh, why I was in it. So then my mum goes and buys a newspaper. She, she doesn't read it until she's having lunch at work. And then she reads it. And of course, you know, she sees this and everybody else knows. And she felt a bit betrayed actually because um, she felt that our relationship was strong enough for me to be open with her first rather than the whole world first yeah um, was there I, I, oh, I was just going to ask was there a reason why you didn't tell your mum first or well <laughs> <your> mom, I? <laughs> <laughs> well I mean I, I think no actually I really did want to tell my mum first actually when I think about it yeah, and I'd struggled to come out to her, you know, uh, for a while until I yeah. decided that I was going to come out. Um, and that wasn't until I was in my uh, early 20s, very early 20s, yeah. Uh, in fact, I left home when I was 20 to move yeah. to London after going to, a few weeks before, going to a Blackgate party in Brixton. And I walked into this house, I'll never forget, and it was packed full of other black gay men. And I thought, oh my God, I think I've died and <laughs> gone to heaven. <laughs> no, 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 no. I thought I died and gone to heaven because it was oh. definitely not that experience in Manchester when I was Yeah. So four weeks later, I was living in London and I decided that I wanted to live my life as an openly black gay man. Yeah, and I guess for me it was a little bit easier back then in the eighties because nobody knew who I was. I didn't grow up in London, um, so I could make you know make make my own life. I guess. Um, yeah, I didn't have I didn't have to worry about other people finding out and it getting back to my family or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I imagine, yeah, imagine, yeah, imagine your mom seeing that first, because you're seeing that first and not having you tell her. Yeah, I can see how that would um, it would upset her because I feel like any mom would kind of want their child to tell them first. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So, but what was it like? So, as you said, that you moved from Manchester to London. Um, mm-hmm. What was it like moving to London as a young black man? Like, what was it like being in a new city, a new environment? Well, to be honest with you, Tino, it's a long, long, long time ago. It's 40 years ago. Yeah. So to remember that far back about what it was like <laughs> is going to be a bit of a challenge, if I'm being honest. But I just remember, you know, being excited like any young person would be moving to the big yeah. smoke. Um, yeah. What can I say? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think one thing that just surprised me when I reflect back is how, you know, I've gone to a party. Four weeks later, I found a job. I found somewhere to live. <laughs> um, yeah. Crazy. You know, the idea, yeah. And the idea of me doing that now is just like inconceivable. Yeah, I'm going to go to a party tomorrow. I'm going to love it. And I'm going to decide <laughs> to move just like that. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The spontaneity of being young, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so as you, uh, so kind of, I guess, kind of moving further into kind of your life, um, you were kind of, you were kind of, I don't know how old you were during sort of like the HIV epidemic and things like that, but what was it kind of like during that period of time for you in your life? Well, um, well, I think on a personal level, uh, it was a very painful period in my life because I lost countless friends uh, over the years. Um, during the HIV epidemic, I worked for a housing association that provided accommodation for people living with HIV. So I was working in, you know, the kind of cold face, I suppose, for more of a better expression. So I was dealing with a lot of death and loss um, at an age when I think, you know, most people that age wouldn't have been experiencing it. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, as my mother always tells me, if you don't kill you, it makes you stronger. So I guess in some ways, um, whilst it was painful and difficult, I mean, you know, I remember being by the bedside of one of my really, really good friends uh, when he took his last breath. Um, and, you know, and that's a memory that I will never forget. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, sometimes I do, if I'm being really honest with you, you know, have a little bit of survivor guilt. You know, like, why did I get through it and my, my good friends didn't? Um, and, you know, I, I think I was just very fortunate uh, to meet an older black gay man who gave me some really good HIV prevention advice. Yeah. And it was, and it, I think it was more the way he told me about it. Mm. Yeah, he was so adamant, <laughs> and you know, as a, and as a young man, and you know, I, I respected him, and I just yeah, yeah, I listened definitely. to him. And, um, yeah. Well, it was it was a difficult period, um, but you know, like like everything, you know, every cloud has a silver lining, and I guess one perspective I have on that uh, period of time is that I think it actually mobilized and galvanized uh, the gay community and particularly the black gay community because i mean you know our friends and lovers were dying all around us yeah so we responded you know um yeah so we set up organizations to help support uh men living with hiv um yeah what did that sort of so what did that sort of look like the response like what were, like you said, you were setting up sort of like refugees for HIV people. Like, what would it, like, I guess, what would it look like? You know what I mean? Well, I mean, um, it's, it's, well, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that um, in terms of resources being targeted at black people and with HIV, they're very, very, very small. Very small, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, um, so we're living in that kind of world in terms of provide, trying to provide and respond to the needs of people affected. Um, and so that was challenging work because there was very, very little resources. And yet, I think despite that and because of that, people went out of their way to help. You know, yeah. And, you know, 
Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. I think, uh, yes. And I've always been, I've always been impressed by the response of the gay community to uh, HIV. Yeah. So how because is it like? About the, if I think, let me just finish. If I think about, oh, the, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. If I think about the rest of society's response to HIV, yeah, um, people living with HIV were really fine and stigmatized. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And yet a lot of gay people stepped up to make a positive difference in the lives of people affected by HIV, including myself. Mm. So what would you say kind of like the perception of HIV is kind of, has it changed now? Like, what do you see kind of now from well, yeah, what's well, yeah, well, well, I think what's changed is, um, you know, medication, you know, somebody diagnosed with HIV today probably die of old age rather than HIV. Um, but it was a very different world back in the 80s and 90s. And there wasn't a cure, there wasn't any medication. Um, so, yeah, so, and I think that's made a big difference. Yet, and still, there's a lot of stigma yeah. to uh, being HIV positive. And, you know, um, and I'm aware that a lot of black men who are HIV positive are very silent about it because of the stigma that exists still to this day. Mm. And because of that silence, often don't get the support and healthcare they need because they're afraid of being stigmatized. Yeah. So how, like, so I guess for those black men that are kind of, are HIV positive and kind of silent, like, what do you think like, how do you think it's best to help them? You know what I mean? Or best to, yeah, how do you think is the best way to kind of maybe get them to go to support services or what can services do? Mm, well, um, you know, I mean, I, I think, I think this applies not just to uh, HIV organisations, this applies to all mainstream organisations really that are providing services. They have to have a commitment to making those services accessible to everybody. And that includes people living with HIV, that includes black people, Indian people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I think for me, that's the starting point. How do I make this organization welcoming and accessible regardless of who that person is? Yeah. And once you start, and once you start from that place, then, you know, I think the journey forward in terms of, um, making organisations more diverse is that's the starting point in my in my view. In your view, yeah, definitely. And yeah. I guess kind of I don't know I don't know if that's something that you've kind of adopted with um, this um, what do you call it the the gay black community of like older mm-hmm. adults that you're doing. Like how is mm-hmm. that like how is that sort of influence? I guess um, your running of it. How has what influenced? How like how has um, making sure that you're inclusive of everybody um, has that affected your um, your community that you've built? Well, I guess the way that it's affected. Well, first of all, let me start by saying um, yes. I set up an organisation um, at the start of the pandemic in March last year called Black Connection, and it's a social network targeting black queer men over the age of 50. Um, and I guess 
one of the things that um, we're very clear about in terms of our values is about celebrating the rich diversity that exists within our community. So I guess, yeah, and, and we have a commitment to that. And the group is made up of men from all parts of the African diaspora. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's what makes uh, the group a kind of positive experience for a lot of people, that difference um, and diversity. Mm. So how have you how have you been finding running your organisation? Um, I mean, it's been very empowering, I would say. Uh, there are challenges. I mean, I think one of the things that I think older black queer men are dealing with is kind of issues around intersectionality in terms of homophobia, racism, ageism. And I think that can be challenging. Uh, yeah, because I think a lot of men, I imagine, have created a world of safety in a world that is often hostile to men uh, who are same gender loving. Um, and so create a world that keeps them safe. And to step out of that comfort zone, I think can be challenging, especially when it's um, a world that's been created over many years. And especially if you've survived the HIV epidemic, for example. Mm. You know, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, I mean, just like me, you know, as an older guy, you know, I'm sitting that way. So yeah. There's certain things I know that I'm not interested in or, you know, won't do and stuff like that. And then, you know, as an older person, you know, having people tell me what to do, you know, it can be, um, yeah, I think that, that those kinds of issues can be challenging. And I think... One of the things that I've been massively impressed about in terms of that connection is just how, um, how people have been able to rebuild um, relationships. Uh, yeah. I think people yeah. have lost touch with people over the years, and I think Black Connection has given them an opportunity to reconnect. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 and that I think is can be and often is very powerful for people <laughs> because I think one of the things I know I experience as an older black gay man, I think I live very much in a youth focused culture. Yeah, and then I live in a I'm part of a community that is even more youth focused, and so I can often feel like I don't exist. Mm. very few if any spaces for older gay men uh, where we can meet and socialize and you know build community um, and that's what black connection is about is trying to fill that gap yeah definitely and yeah. how do you i guess how do you kind of see i guess the like the younger generation in terms of um I guess like an LGBT movement because I guess like to me it's kind of you see it's you see on social media you see pride and you see all of those things and mm -hmm. it's it's like it's a, I guess every it's everywhere to be fair which I guess is a good thing um, because it's getting more exposure but what are your sort of views on kind of like the younger sort of generation of the LGBT community? 
my views of the younger generation, my views on the younger generation. I have no views about the younger generation. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say to that. I, <laughs> I, I guess it is. What I mean, it is, I think in it? terms of, yeah, it is. You know, I mean, I think the... I'm not going to say LGBT movement. I, do, I would call it the LGBT community. Yeah. I would say is getting greater exposure and visibility. I think that's, and because of that greater exposure and visibility, it's making a difference around the world in terms of uh, greater acceptance of lesbians uh, and gay men. But we must not forget that there are lots and lots of places around the world where it's not okay to be gay. Yeah, definitely. You know, Ghana, for example, Nigeria, you know. Um, and I think it's also important to remember that the first place, the first country in the world to enshrine the rights of lesbians and gay men in its constitution was South Africa. And that's in really? Africa. Yes. Wow. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I say it, because not that many people know this. Yeah, you wouldn't have thought. Um, yeah, and and it was because of the campaigning of lesbians and gay men living in South Africa at that time. Simon Nicoli springs to mm. mind when I think about um, one of the key activists then. Um, yeah, and if it wasn't for their struggle, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Who was um, Simon Nicoli? Do you know more on it? Like, he was a black gay activist in South Africa. He was yeah, championed the, the rights of lesbians and gay people, and ensured that um, the rights of LGBT people were included in the uh, South African Constitution. Yeah, and I guess, I guess, I guess that kind of has like a ripple effect onto like the other countries as well, maybe forcing them to kind of make some changes as well. Because South Africa is a big, like it's still a big player just in general, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, who'd have thought, you know, that, you know, who'd have thought just as little as 10 years ago that, you know, most of the South American Catholic religious-based countries, you know, have uh, introduced uh, gay marriage, for example. Yeah. Yes, I think, I think you know, um, and all these things push the agenda forward. I would say, yeah. mm, definitely, yeah, and yeah, it's only it's only positive that more countries are recognizing it and that there is more diversity. I think one thing which was a bit saddening to see was, um, I think it was Hungary um, mm-hmm. passed yeah. a law about LGBT education for kids under age ten, and I know that mm-hmm. brought up a lot of like a lot of arguments were brought up around that as well. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting hearing you say that because I remember very vividly Section 28, which was brought mm. in during the Thatcher government, um, where it, you know, where she banned these books in schools of pretended family units. And there was a massive campaign against uh, uh, Section 28. And when yeah. the Labour government, the government came in. It was one of the first pieces of legislation that they got rid of. 
that they scratch it. The damage that it was doing to LGBT people. Wow. Yeah, and I think I think just when politicians make those sort of choices, like it then it like then ripples into other into people's views, like within society, um, which I like, which is just not it's just not good, really, is it? Like because you're kind of just putting on this, you're putting on a front that like, oh, we don't accept, we don't accept this, so because it doesn't look like what we're usually used to, you know. Mm. So, yeah. So um, I guess I wanted to ask sort of your top is your the top that you wear today. People, people listening, they won't be able to see it. But <laughs> um, it says I am I am black gay. I'm a black gay man. I'm a black man. I'm a man. I really like that. I like I just love how it sort of like it kind of phrases masculinity in that, you you know, like it doesn't matter what you are like. You are still a man. You know what I mean? So I guess what were you like? I guess following on from that, um, what are your sort of views on like black masculinity? Mm. Well, thank you for the compliment of the t-shirt. Um, <laughs> it's all right. And if anybody's interested in purchasing one, I think the company's called the Spectrum. The Spectrum. Uh, all right. Yeah, 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 that's where I got it from. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question, this idea of uh, black masculinity, uh, you know, because I think there's an idea somehow that because I'm gay, that I've forfeited my right to be black, because, you know, homosexuality doesn't exist in Africa. Yeah, apparently. It's a lot of rubbish, <laughs> yeah, load of rubbish. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you know, Shaka Zulu, you know, one of our greatest heroes had a, har- a harem of boys, for example, young men. Oh, I had no idea about that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, eh? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so in terms of masculinity, yeah, this is the idea that because I'm gay, somehow uh, I'm not a man anymore. I forfeited my masculinity because of my sexuality, um, which is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, look how many gay rugby players have come out recently. So true. Or, 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 or American footballers, you know, the kind of masculine or macho sports. Yeah, I mean, you know, gay men, in my experience, featuring in every walk of life. Mm. Uh, and just because you're gay doesn't mean that it stops you from being a man. And just because you're black and gay doesn't stop you from being a black man. Yeah. When I'm walking down the street, a lot of people don't see uh, the fact that I'm a gay man. They'll see me, my, my skin color first. Yeah. And the difference based on that. For yeah. Example. It's something, yeah, it's something that, like, you can't, especially when people view you like they don't. They don't see all the other layers of what you are. They just kind of look mm. at you from face value. Um, yeah. That you're still a black man. Like, have you always been? Like, I guess have you always been comfortable um, in your identity as a like as a man, or like have you ever like thought? Because I know I've had times where I've been like, oh, I don't really feel manly. Like, because maybe I listen to jazz or because I'll cry at rom-coms or something like that. Like, has there ever been a point for you in your life where you've kind of maybe not felt as comfortable or? 
Well, I mean, I might not feel totally comfortable when I'm around a large group of heterosexual black men, for example. Mm. Uh, I, know, I know I would feel a lot more comfortable in the company of a large group of black gay men because I know it's unlikely that I'm going to experience any homophobia. Um, but having said that, you know, I have been around a lot of black straight men and I haven't experienced direct homophobia either. So, you know, um, but in terms of, I think, in terms of masculinity or black masculinity, this sort of thing, you know, I think um, it's very complicated. I don't think it is black and white. Yeah. <laughs> Pun intended. And, be- and because and because of that complexity, in order to make sense of the world, I think what a lot of people do is put things in boxes, myself included, mm. and help make sense of the world. And so, this box that I've created called masculinity says that I'm supposed to be into reggae music. I'm supposed to, you know, be a womanizer. I'm supposed to, etc., etc., etc. Yeah. Um, and if I don't, and if you don't fit in that box, then where do you go? Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Um, so I do not subscribe to this one idea of what it means to be a black man. You know, um, it's, 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 it's limiting. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much diversity like in black men, like you have Neil, you have, I was actually watching a video with Neil deGrasse Tyson and like, like he's like, he's completely different to somebody like LeBron James, you know what I mean? So, and there's, and there's more and more diversity within it. So trying to put things in boxes doesn't, doesn't allow for that diversity. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, which is, yeah, um, yeah, I think hopefully it's something which, I guess it's something which, I mean, I guess with the podcast I'm trying to do is that giving loads of different variations of what it means to be a black man, you know? Yeah. But, you know, I mean, again, it's interesting because I'm just sitting here listening to you and I'm thinking about Prince, mm. you know, um, who used to, you know, perform on stage in six-inch high heels. Yeah. But nobody ever questioned his masculinity. No, even and women. Yeah. Go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's an it's an interesting one, and he was a black man. Yeah. Now, if we lived in these very rigid confines of what masculinity is, how did he become so popular? One might argue that uh, you know because he wore high heels, he wasn't a threat to white people and so white people embraced him and that's how he became a star one man yeah that's interesting you know but I would argue that it's more to do with his immense and incredible talent yeah genius and genius more than anything else um but yeah I mean these things are, are complicated I think but for me it's really important that because I'm gay that does not make me a woman Mm. Because I'm gay, it doesn't make me a white man. Yeah. And it's, yeah. 
Yeah. And I I feel that I have I'm a fully paid up member of the black community. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not going to allow the black community to dismiss me if I can help it because I'm gay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think I think it's really upsetting when you hear like when you hear things about like kids being kicked out because they told their parents they're gay and like and it's like it's still your child like it's still there's still that person that you grew up with and you raised so like it's really disheartening when you hear things like that yeah Tina you know it's interesting hearing you say that because uh, back in the late 80s early 90s I was the chair of Stonewall Housing Association yeah Stonewall Housing Association was created to provide temporary accommodation to young LGBT people who've been kicked out of their family home when their family discovered they were gay or lesbian. Yeah. And every year we used to do our annual report where we produce statistics on the ethnic breakdown of residents. And it always used to break my heart when I would see that over 60% of our residents back then were uh, black. Yeah. And from African-Arabian backgrounds. And especially back then when the population of black people in London was a lot, lot less than 60%. Yeah. Um, and it just used to break my heart to think that, you know, black families would evict their children onto the streets simply because they are gay. I mean, and, and I guess what that illustrate, further illustrates to me is the power of homophobia. And yeah. I think often what gets lost in the debate around homophobia, because often it's focused on the victims, but actually, you know, homophobia affects the perpetrators. You know, homophobia makes you a not very nice person. <laughs> <laughs> True. You know what I mean? You know, but <laughs> people don't really look at it from that perspective. Yeah. They tend to look at it from the perspective of the victim, and rightfully so as well. And I think homophobia does a serious damage to straight people. Mm. Do you know How what I mean? So? Well, you know, if somebody's homophobic, then they've probably got other ideas that I probably don't agree with. Yeah. <laughs> Number one. You know, I've tried to kind of hang around with people who are a bit progressive in their thinking. And somebody who's homophobic, for me, doesn't um, fit the definition of uh, progressive thinking. Yeah. You know, I mean, come on. I mean, the most powerful man on this planet uh, before Trump was, you know, Obama. Obama. Yeah. Obama. You know, when he became president, he wasn't sure, too sure about gay marriage and all that kind of stuff, but he moved and shifted and changed. And the most powerful black man in the world brought in gay marriage to his for, country. For argument. Wow. Most powerful country. Yeah. But most influential country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> black people around the world saw that news. Mm. Now, I didn't remember at the time a lot of black people saying, you know, all around the world saying, Obama is an idiot. Or yeah. Cool for doing this. No. 
Yeah, and and for me, and for me to stand up and say, you know what, I disagree with um, Obama on that point. It's going to be that's not easy really to do, is it? Yeah, not really. Most powerful, most powerful man in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think I think I think he has made a massive difference, actually. Yeah, yeah, in terms of um, moving the debate forward. Yeah, definitely. Like that. Yeah, that's a. I don't think it gets acknowledged enough, which is why I'm saying it. Mm, oh, fair enough, yeah. I guess it's also it was also quite a brave move. It shouldn't be a brave move for him to do, but it was quite a brave move because, yeah. you know, in a, I guess in America, even in here, like they all focus on the polls and the likes and all of this and that. So for him to kind of do that, yeah, it was definitely a big move. Yeah, yeah. And it sent, and it sent a very, very clear message to the rest of the African diaspora. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, so, yeah. And I think, and, and in some ways, I think, you know, maybe that's probably why we have some of the backlashes we're having now. Yeah. Because of that because, increasing profile. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I guess, I guess even just the world that we live in, you had Obama who was seen as a really progressive person and then you flip straight to Trump, which is kind of the opposite. So, and that, I guess that's sort of the, the backlash that you've seen in terms of like, more social media hate online and things like that. It's like you go from one extreme, you go from one extreme to the next extreme. Like there's no equilibrium, I guess, or balance. I don't know. I mean, there shouldn't be hate anyway, but it's an interesting mm-hmm. thing to notice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but yeah. hi. <laughs> We guess I don't know. Well, hopefully things. I'm I'm sure things will definitely get better. Um, yeah, I think I think for me, uh, one way things will get better, especially for Black LGBTQ people, mm. is for more Black heterosexual allies to stand up and say homophobia is wrong. Mm. And that we need to support our black brothers and sisters who are lesbian and gay and not attack them and vilify them. We need to celebrate the fact that they are part of our community too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And how can, um, I guess from your experience, how can kind of heterosexual heterosexual people be allies? Like, to well, they can stop people? putting their LGBT. Uh, family members out on the street. Yeah, small one, just a small one. <laughs> <laughs> For a start, you know, they could attempt to include them rather than exclude them from family events and activities, for example. Yeah. Simple thing. Maybe simple. You tell your, you could, uh, a simple thing could be just to tell the lesbian and gay people that you know that you love and support them and that you've got their back. Yeah. For example, or, you know, when you're in the barber shop the next time and somebody comes out with uh, some homophobic comment about little Nas X, you know, you can say, oh, rather than sit there in silence Mm. and the silence, you know, you know, what what, what did they used to say in the the 80s during the HIV epidemic? Act Up used to say, Silence equals death. 
Yeah. And I've never forgotten that slogan because I think it's very true. Mm. You know, if, oh, if, we're, if we're silent, we're invisible. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the allies, the black heterosexual allies, to, to, in a lot of ways, are silent. Mm. And so, and because of that silence, it gets filled with the kind of homophobic voice. So I would yeah. say it would, be, it would be a good day if more black heterosexual people you know, stood up and said, "Boy, that's wrong. This is what, what the deal is." Yeah, this yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah de- like it's. I think also when you're in those sort of conversations, like at first, like I know, I know sometimes, like I've been in conversations and I wanted to be like, "No, that's wrong. You shouldn't be saying that." But then you kind of get this sort of like mental block before yourself, like, "Oh wait, but you're gonna kind of be on your own when you're saying this." But I guess we've just got to be brave enough to. Stand yeah. on your own, you know. And you know what? It's interesting hearing you say that because I'm thinking, mm, if Martin Luther King thought, "Oh, I'm going to be on my own if I, you know, do this," or if the suffragettes thought, "Oh, I'm going to be on my own," or if mm-hmm. Malcolm X thought, you know, if I stand up and speak, you know, I'm gonna, where would this world be today? Yeah, you know what I mean. And I guess, you know, without sounding too uh, trite. You know, my mother didn't raise me to be a mouse. Mm. She raised me to be a man. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of her ideas about manhood is about standing up for what you believe in Mm. and not being silent uh, about the things that are wrong. Yeah. In this world. Yeah. That's what my mum taught me when I was growing up. And it stuck with you till now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Which is why I've got my T-shirt on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So true, so true. Um, So I just kind of wanted to ask you sort of a final question. Um, If you were, like, if there's kind of like a young black boy kind of discovering their masculinity, um, Mm -hmm. what do you think kind of this conversation or something that you no, can like add to like an understanding, I guess, of black masculinity? Well, I think if I think back to my own personal experience, I never forget when I was, well, I must have been about 16, 17. Mm. And I went into my local library to try and find a book about being gay. And I searched and searched and searched and all I could find were books that said I was sick, I was a paedophile, I had a mental health problem, blah, blah, blah. Negative, negative, negative. And that stayed with me for years until I moved moved from Manchester down to London and found a a black gay community. Now, you know, fortunately, 40 years later, if I go into my local library in Brixton, I can find books written by other black gay men. And the reason why I say this is because I will never forget the first book I read that it was a short story called Passion in uh, a book called In the Life, which was the first book of writings published by lots of different black gay African-American men. And in this story called Passion by a man called Sidney Brinkley, 
he wrote a story about two black men making love. I'd never, ever, ever read that on the printed page before. Yeah. And after reading that story, it completely changed my life. Yeah. Because I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I've got to meet the guy who wrote this story. I have to, and then I and, and I thought, and I have to try and meet as many of the writers in this book as I can. Yeah. I went to America in 1988, the first time. And um, yeah, I met about 80% of the writers in the book. Wow. And you know, that that experience completely changed my life. Because mm. I met some really positive role models at a very impressionable age. And I saw these older guys, because a lot of them were older than me, living their lives with pride and they were successful, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, I can be too. Yeah. I can be like them. Yeah, it completely changed my world after reading that book. So I guess... um, In the technological world that we live in today, I mean, books may not have as much cachet as they did when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think literature, uh, media creation focused around the kind of black gay experience, I think uh, would be incredibly helpful to younger LGBT, black LGBT people coming through without question. Yeah, I never forget feeling when I was living in Manchester, thinking I was the only one. That was a thought that constantly went through my mind because whenever I went to a couple of gay venues that I went to in Manchester before I moved to London, there weren't any other black guys. There was one or two. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think, you know, positive media... uh, Celebrating the black gay experience, I think, makes a massive difference. Without yeah. yeah, awesome. I know it made a massive difference to me. Yeah, definitely. And hearing how, like, I could see your face lighting up as you were talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I can, I can yeah. even just see how it had such a positive effect on you. And mm. I hope other young black men can kind of get that sort of mm. moment. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, I have to say that trip totally inspired me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally inspired me to to be the man that I am today. Yeah, without question. Yeah, definitely. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Dennis, for coming onto the podcast and talking about my, your experiences and all of that. My pleasure, Tina. Um, so yeah, I will hopefully speak to you soon and have a good day. Yeah, and before you go, I just want to say the next man you talk to, I want you to ask him when did he realize he was heterosexual? Oh, it might be my dad, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you must let me know what he says to that, too. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I want to. <laughs> we'll see how that one goes. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, you know, I might, I might ask, I might ask other people other than my dad as well. See, see, kind of what the responses I get. I think it'd be quite interesting. 
Yeah. It's all right. Well, thank you, Dennis, uh, and have a good day. All right, you too. Bye. Thank you, Dennis, for coming on to the Black and Raw podcast. Um, I really enjoyed you bringing your wealth of experience to this conversation. And I hope that this conversation can help people understand more um, about the black gay experience and what it's like being black and gay in the UK. Um, And yeah, I think it's really important that it's something that we understand. Um, And how Dennis was saying earlier that, you know, we need to stand up to people that are making homophobic remarks. And sometimes it's hard to stand up by yourself and stand alone. But as he said, if Martin Luther King didn't want to stand alone, where would we be now? So even just that small thing of standing up when you hear people making those homophobic remarks or things like that, I think it's important that we understand what that does for people um, and what that does for the LGBT community. So I think it's really important, and I know I've said important a lot, but I'm going to stress, I do think it's really important um, that we understand uh, their experiences and that we best try to support people um, that are part of the LGBT community, um, especially our young gay black men that are out there um, that maybe don't feel included or welcomed. Um, and I think we should make a space for them but they do feel welcomed and included because at the end of the day, they're still our brothers, still our friends, still our cousins, you know, they're still people. So yeah, I think that is kind of just what I wanted to say. And I really enjoyed this episode. And again, thank you, Dennis, for coming on. Um, so if you guys want to find out more about um, Black Connection, and um, some of the stuff that was said during the episode. Um, I'll put those into the show notes or you can go onto my website and you'll find all the links there. Um, In the life, um, I'll also add that book onto the show notes as well Um, because I think it would be really good for anybody that is, that wants to know more about the black gay experience actually. Um, I think that would be really good to read. Um, And as you heard, Dennis, um, that book helps Dennis so much. So I think it's really important um, if you want to learn more. So I think that's it from me, guys. Um, Thank you for listening to the episode. If you made it this far, hope you did. Um, Yeah, if you made it this far, um, then yeah, thank you very much for listening. And um, if you want to get into contact with me, Uh, You can email me at speak at blackandraw.co.uk. Instagram and Twitter is at blackandraw. And my website is www.blackandraw2w's.co.uk. So yeah, thank you very much for listening and we'll talk soon.